0: This is the Daily Signal podcast for Monday, April 11th. I'm Doug Blair. And
1: I'm Virginia Allen. The job of a prosecutor is to uphold justice. But what happens to a city when the defense attorney is no longer prosecuting
0: criminals to the full extent of the law? According to Los Angeles County Deputy District Attorney Eric Sedell and former prosecutor Kathleen Cady, consequences are dire. Virginia recently traveled to Los Angeles for a Heritage Foundation event that featured speakers discussing the issue of a rise in rogue prosecutors. While there, she had the chance to sit down with Eric and Kathleen and ask them about the progressive prosecutor movement.
1: I'm excited to share that conversation with you all here on the show today.
0: Also on today's show, we read your letters to the editor and share a good news story to kick off our week. Before we get to the show, we want to tell you
1: all about the most popular resource on the Heritage Foundation website. The Guide to the Constitution.
0: More than 100 scholars have contributed to create a unique line-by-line analysis of our Constitution. The guide is intended to provide a brief but accurate explanation of each clause of the Constitution as envisioned by the framers and as applied in contemporary law.
1: There has truly never been a more important time in our nation's history to have an understanding of our founding document. So if you want to learn more about the Constitution, go ahead and visit heritage.org slash constitution, or you can simply search for Heritage Guide to the Constitution.
0: Now stay tuned for Virginia's conversation with Eric Sadal and Kathleen Cady.
1: I am so pleased to be joined today by Los Angeles County Deputy District Attorney and Vice President of the Los Angeles Association of Deputy District Attorneys, Eric Seidel. Eric, thank you so much for being here.
2: Thank you for having me. appreciate it.
1: So before we get too deep into talking about progressive prosecutors in Los Angeles, district attorney George Gascon, um, can you first just explain what exactly a prosecutor is? What, what do they do? What's their responsibility? And also, more specifically, what is the job of, of the district attorney?
2: Okay, so a prosecutor basically enforces the laws of the state or the nation, depending on if you're a federal prosecutor or a state prosecutor. So, for example, I'm a state prosecutor, so my job is to enforce the laws of California, but we also have certain types of ethical duties as prosecutors, very different from other types of lawyers. Uh, Our duty is to first do justice. Uh, It is to do justice in an ethical way. So we are supposed to follow the law. We're supposed to be ethical. We're supposed to, if there's some type of evidence that shows that the defendant is not guilty, we are supposed to turn over that evidence immediately to the defense lawyer. Um, we don't. Re- our fight is really to make sure that the system works, that the right people are held accountable, and that we hold people accountable in a legal and ethical manner.
1: Excellent. Thank you so much for explaining that. So then, um, when we talk about progressive prosecutors or some call them rogue prosecutors, um, when, when we use that term, what, what exactly does that mean?
2: Well, I think the term progressive prosecutor has somewhat been bastardized, uh, You know, my former boss, Jackie Lacey, I considered her to be a progressive prosecutor because she took into consideration other things. Like, for example, mental health was a big initiative that she did when she was the district attorney of Los Angeles. However, there's this new brand of prosecutors. And really what they're doing is they're engaged in a social experiment to see whether – you know, they, they come here with an ideology, and their ideology is really that prisons are always bad, no matter what, that our legal system, system should be completely overturned. And I don't—I'm not trying to sound like I'm—you know, I'm being reactionary when I say that. I mean, when George Gascone first announced that he wanted to be the district attorney of Los Angeles, he actually said— he wanted to turn the whole system upside down. So really what they're doing is they're engaged in a massive social experiment, except they never have to pay the price for their experiments. Other people do.
1: And when you, you know, speaking of George Gascon and the idea of a large-scale experiment, so Gascon took office in 2020 um, Explain what you mean by a large-scale experiment. Like how, how would you describe the way that Gascon is leading and sort of this methodology that he has?
2: Well, when he first ca- took office in December of 2020, uh, he, in, he basically brought in uh, these orders. He calls them directives. Uh, they're basically orders uh, about how he wants our prosecutors to handle cases what was interesting about when he wrote the, when these orders came out it was ex, it was very clear that the that they were written not by a prosecutor not even informed by a prosecutor they were written by defense lawyers and people who have an agenda to basically decriminalize certain crimes so he eliminated a lot of misdemeanor crime but also People who don't believe that prisons should exist, and therefore, one of the things he did was he started he created these um, these arbitrary numbers, saying that after 15 years, everyone's sentence should be reexamined. And he created uh, he also banned prosecutors from using certain types of conduct enhancements <clears throat> and. Conduct enhancements are basically a way to be able to punish certain crimes differently because the conduct of the, cr- of the criminal is different. For example, if a criminal injures someone during a crime and creates great bodily injury to that person, that person should be treated differently from the criminal who doesn't, right? That's logic, and the penal code reflects that logic, those values, uh, George Gascone immediately wanted to eliminate conduct enhancements. He also wanted to eliminate enhancements that dealt directly with a person 's prior criminal record so if you 're a career criminal, you should be treated differently from the first time offender and th- Again, the penal code uh, in California reflects that the, that value system. So he wanted to get rid of that as well. So basically, he wanted to get rid of every single tool that we have to deal with the most severe criminals and the most career-oriented criminals. In other words, career criminals and dangerous criminals. He got rid of all those tools to deal with those two specific groups.
1: Why? In the name of what?
2: I think you would have to ask him why he 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 did what he did. Um, it would be a pure speculation on my part. Uh, I, you know, there is some rhetoric that he thinks or that that he hopes that the system will become more racially equitable because of that, but all it really does this type of program that he's implementing is it makes sure that the most uh, violent offenders and career criminals are not appropriately pr- punished and held accountable.
1: So then how does that work out practically in society? Has crime increased in Los Angeles since Gascon took office?
2: So there has been a general crime uh, change in a uh, trend in California and in Los Angeles and there has been an uptick in crime I think it would be um, misleading at this point to blame him on the on the on the huge uptick for example in homicides my issue more is that I do not believe that he has a plan to deal with the trend in in crime and You know, crime is one of those things that once it gets embedded in a neighborhood, it's very difficult to take out. And we did a remarkable job as a society. Since 1994, uh, for about 20 years, we brought brought extremely low crime rates. And the primary beneficiary of these lower crime rates were uh, marginalized communities. So in Los Angeles, it would be communities like Watts, Um, You know, Compton areas. I I actually spent most of my career in the Compton Watts area, so I'm very familiar with what happened. And you know, I remember one of the uh, there was a a, a father whose son was murdered, and the father was a gang member. He was kind of a retired gang member, and his son um, was marginally a gang member, and he was his son was killed by a guy from the. They're the same gang. And I think it was one of the most moving moments I remember after we convicted his son's murder. He came uh, up to me and he said, You know, I have been through this courthouse many, many times, but it's great to see justice happen. And we were able to really bring peace to neighborhoods that were at war with themselves for decades and there was this incredible carnage that I think people forget about in the 70s and the 80s and the early 90s. Young men were dying at an alarming rate and one of the great successes that we were able to have because of our fight in crime is that these young men were living and they were living long lives. and. As a result, those communities were radically changing. They became economically, you know, they they were improving economically. Their schools were improving. Um, You know, one of the things that people, I think, sometimes forget is that a lot of city schools, especially urban schools, actually had a huge increase in test scores uh, because of our investment in the community, our decrease in crime all these different factors really started making these places livable. And unfortunately, what we have been experiencing over the past couple of years is a return back to the, the era of chaos and the era where that peace was, uh, was, was not there. And violence doesn't just impact the immediate victim it does not just impact the, the perpetrator of the violence but it perpetua- it really affects the entire community it makes the community unlivable it will even decrease test scores for young for for students there because when you live in a place with violence when you live in a place where there's lots of gunshots adrenaline levels are so high in those communities because they're trying to survive and when you have high adrenaline, you don't do well in tests. And, you know, so I think that one of the things that's so unfortunate about these, these uh, you know, this this new wave of, of, like, experimenting with the criminal justice system is that really the effects and the costs are not borne out by the people who are the social experimenters. They're borne out by the people who live in communities who are already disadvantaged.
1: Eric, thank you so much. Stay tuned because up next, we're going to dive a little deeper into the realities of progressive or rogue prosecutors with Los Angeles victim's rights attorney and retired prosecutor, Kathy Cady. Katie joins us now. She is the former LA prosecutor and is now a victim's rights attorney in LA. She provides pro bono representation to crime victims and assist them with asserting their rights in criminal and juvenile justice
3: cases. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for having me and for covering this really important topic. I'm, I'm, I'm glad to be included. Thank you. You worked as a prosecutor for over thirty years. So you've you've really seen this whole system for years
1: and years and years. Talk a little bit uh, about some of the the changes that you have seen personally um, from before Gascone
3: was uh, was the district attorney to now him being the district attorney. Um, so uh, I worked under a number of prosecutors. Um, I was uh, a DA under Steve Cooley for 12 years and for Jackie Lacey for eight. And when I retired, uh, Jackie was still the DA. And I'm definitely a fan of Jackie Lacey. I think she was um, an amazing uh, district attorney um, I will say that over my career in the office um, you know there was kind of a move uh, I would agree with uh, Eric that there was a move um, Jackie was progressive and she was moving towards um, you know mental health diversion there were other um, other ways that we were looking at um, you know trying to make things better right that's what you always want to do when you're in a system you want to look at what's working what's not working and then try to make things better so um, <clears throat> I would say that uh, during my career in the office, um, I saw that over and over again, and it was, um, you know, it was the best career ever. I loved being a prosecutor, and I loved getting up and going to work every day to know that I was there to do the right thing. Yeah.
1: So, I know you—you know, you have personally, obviously, prosecuted so so many cases over your your long career. Um, have you personally been a part of um, of any cases where you feel like the the victims you were representing? didn't get
3: that justice um, that they deserved or that that they needed to have closure. You're talking about when I was a prosecutor. Well, I'm sure. Uh, Any prosecutor (laughs) um, who's been with the office for a long time certainly has – You know, handled cases um, and/or done jury trials that did not turn out the way that um, they had hoped, and that they thought the evidence, um, you know, would suggest that that it would would turn out that way, and. I'm not alone in that. Um, I tried, uh, about 90 jury trials and, uh, when I was in the office, felony jury trials. And I certainly had some cases where, um, the jury saw the evidence differently. And, you know, victims, I think, um, felt very sad about that. What, what I would say is different now is that when the justice system is working, you as a prosecutor or, you know, even as a victim's rights attorney could talk to the victim and say, look, we tried everything we could and this is what happened and I'm sorry but that you know this is how it worked. Or uh sometimes in cases, you know, you would the evidence there'd be problems with the evidence and you would talk to the victims and you'd say, Look, there are real issues with the in the evidence in this case and we need to offer a plea bargain to something, right? <clears throat> and victims might be disappointed, but I think you know, they're they're willing to listen, and if you have a reason as to why you're doing things, um, they can understand that. They may not be happy with the result, but I think they generally can understand what was going on. The difference between then and now is that victims will say things. You know, when when they're being told, okay, well, we have to dismiss this allegation, this gun allegation, this gang allegation, and the questions, of course, will were well, why? And prosecutors, of course, were left to say, um, because of a policy. And, um, that is what has been so different, right? Because victims, if you were, if you similarly now were looking at a case and said, you know what, we have to dismiss the gun allegation because there's problems in the evidence, there's this issue, there's that issue, and so that's the reason we have to do it. I think victims would be able to understand that. But when the issue is, well, actually, the only reason we're dismissing it is because we have this newly elected prosecutor and he has a policy, not a law, Um, that is requiring us to dismiss it, victims, that's when they feel completely abandoned because they recognize that the law still allows that a case be handled in a certain way. But when a a person who's come in and has been elected and has sworn to uphold the law is really not upholding the law and is undercutting the case for reasons that don't make any sense, that's when victims, I think, feel abandoned.
1: If you would talk about some of those policies that Gascon has put in place that he has changed, where you do have situations like that, where you're having to, you know, throw out gun charges
3: or um, things like that, what's shifted? Um, so to talk about a couple cases, sure. So, um, one of the ones, um, that I would talk about is his youth justice policy. So the law allows that when you have a 16 or 17 year old who commits a really horrific crime, um, that they can be charged in criminal court. And there's a process where you do that and it's called filing a transfer motion. So the only way you can get it to criminal court is the district attorney's office has to file this transfer motion. Well, um, so there were apparently 77 cases where there was a transfer motion that was filed when Gascon came in, and he ordered that all of those transfer motions be, be withdrawn. So um, I have represented um, well over 20 murder victims' families where the person who murdered their loved one was under 18. And so to say to them, um, well, the case is no longer going to go to criminal court, Um, you know, the person who killed your loved one um, is going to stay in juvenile court. And what that means is that they will only stay in custody for you know, a handful of years, um, they definitely will be released by the time they're 25. If not before, um, is very devastating to crime victims. So just as a couple of examples, I represent a family where, um, a man who was almost 18, one month shy of 18, he murdered two sisters, one who was 16 and one who was 27. He executed them both. And then he set the apartment where they were in on fire to try to cover up his crime. Um, and you might imagine that for the family, uh, who lost those two precious young women, um, finding out that the reason that the person who murdered their loved one was perhaps not going to go to a uh, criminal court was based on a policy was very devastating. Another example, uh, two amazing young men, Alfredo and Jose, who were both gunned down by gang members and... Um, uh, one of them was, uh, you know, just starting his career uh, with NASA, and the other one uh, was about to be a first-time father, and uh, they were both gunned down uh, by gang members who were out hunting, meaning they were out just looking for people to shoot and murder. And um, so, two gang members who were 16 and 17 year old, um, because of the blanket policy, uh, were not put up to a criminal court and stayed in juvenile court. So, for those families. Um, it, It's devastating. It's just absolutely devastating. Um, Another uh, example that I would give is that um, victims, uh, mostly murder victims' families, um, before Gascon, uh, when their murderer was going to be coming up for parole, the person who murdered their loved one was coming up for parole— the district attorney's office um, would send a prosecutor to the parole hearing. And that happens throughout the state in California, but not in Los Angeles, not after Gascon took office. So he took office, I think, on December 7th or 8th of 2020. And victims were called that day to be told, you know, the parole hearing that you have to go to tomorrow for the person who murdered your loved one however many years ago, the one that I've been telling you I'll be coming to with you, I'll be there, um... I can't go. You're going to have to do it on your own tomorrow. And um, so throughout the last year, um, there have been a number of us pro bono attorneys who've been representing victims at these parole hearings. And again, you know, it's based on a policy. And um, he won't send anyone uh, to represent the victims. He now will not allow victims to actually get information about the person who's in custody to find out, like, how they've been doing um, and whether to expect that they'll be paroled or not paroled. So victims are going in totally blind without having anyone there to um, assist them he's really completely abandoned his responsibility to the public, but especially to these murder victims' families. So um, I've had an opportunity to um, assist victims through some of those parole hearings, as well as, you know, a number of other people with whom I work do that same work. But it's been, you know, just devastating to crime victims.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, you hear these stories and you hear you talk and it it just, it feels a little bit, um, a little bit unbelievable, I guess, that you know, someone could be watching this played out and and not uh, not see that there's some issues or, or some problems kind of in the methodology. Um, and I, you know, I think people on both sides of the aisle agree. Um, you know, changes need to be made to the criminal justice system. There there should be reforms in areas. Um, and you know, that is something that Gascon has been very gung-ho about is, you know, we need reforms, we need changes, we need to rethink the criminal justice system, Uh, we need to end mass incarceration. But the the way he's going about it, I think, is giving a lot of people like yourself pause. Um, Why do you think he's kind of uh, forging ahead right now um, when people like yourself who have so much experience in the field of prosecution are you know, publicly saying, whoa, 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 wait, this isn't working?
3: Well, um, he certainly had at his fingertips when he came in um, many, many experienced prosecutors um, who had years of knowledge and um, expertise in any number of fields, the ones that I've just talked about, juvenile justice as well as, you know, parole, but um, gangs, you know, um, all kinds of other areas as well. And he... um, Foolishly, um, would not actually listen to them. He claimed that, of course, he wanted to listen to what prosecutors had to say, um, but he clearly, over his last, uh, you know, the last 14 months, has not listened to what any experienced prosecutors have had to say. They've been telling him since day one that his policies are foolhardy and will result in people being harmed, communities being harmed, public safety being impacted. Um, and he doesn't care. He seems to continue to go to the um, handful of people that he handpicked from the public defender's office to come over to um, give him guidance. And um, clearly, the policies that were written that he sticks to were written by these people when they were still public defenders. So um, prosecutors, unfortunately, in the office right now, and um, you know, certainly at the very beginning, um, felt as though if they didn't do what Gascon wanted, the people who would be turned Turning them in, so to speak, would be public defenders. So it was almost as though the prosecutors going into court felt like they were having to, you know, work for the public defender's office or that they would get in trouble and, you know, be, um, tattled on, so to speak. Um, you know, for victims who have been telling him since day one, and I personally have told him on numerous occasions, both on Zoom calls as well as through emails, um, that he is continuing to really negatively impact and devastate crime victims. Um, again, I've represented um, over 100 murder victims' families over the last, you know, year and a few months. And um, it's been very clear, made clear to him by myself as well as a number of other people, that what he is doing is is negatively impacting communities of color and that um, especially murder victims' families are devastated. And um, for reasons that I cannot begin to explain, he does not care.
1: Well, and sadly, the situation of um, these progressive prosecutors and George Gascon, it, it's not limited to Los Angeles. We know that this is happening in cities um, all over America, so we certainly encourage our listeners to follow the work of Zach Smith and Kelly Stimson at the Heritage Foundation that are covering uh, rogue prosecutors all over the U.S. in great detail. But uh, Kathy, Katie, thank you for your time. We really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Conservative women, conservative feminists, it's true. We do exist. I'm Virginia Allen, and every Thursday morning on Problematic Women, Lauren Evans and I sort through the news to bring you stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women. That is women whose views and opinions are often excluded or mocked by those on the so-called feminist left. We talk about everything from pop culture to politics and policy, Plus, we bring you an exclusive interview with a problematic lawmaker or conservative activist every second and fourth Tuesday of the month. Search for Problematic Women wherever you get your podcasts. And we are also problematic on social media. So be sure to follow us on Instagram. Thanks so much for sending us your letters to the editor. Each Monday, we feature our favorites on this show. Doug, who do we have first?
0: In response to Jay Richard's commentary piece, Biden Doubles Down on Radical Gender-Affirming Care for Kids, Chris Wheel writes, If six-year-old children are capable of making a decision as complex as a medical procedure involving surgery and lifelong courses of hormone therapy, then why not allow them to vote? Why not allow them to choose whether they shall drink alcohol, smoke cigarettes, or drive a car? Why not allow them to decide on their sex partners, get married, or join the military? The answer is obvious. They're not old enough to have the experience to make wise choices, and their bodies and minds are not fully developed, meaning the way they feel now may change significantly as they grow up. So those advocating that children should be able to choose their gender, as if they can actually do that, as that is determined by their DNA, are advocating child abuse.
1: And in response to Victor Davis Hanson's commentary, history should be our guide in Ukraine. Shira Levine of Minneapolis, Minnesota, writes, the Ukrainian people fighting Russia have shown determination to save their country from Russia. They will, with the right support, be successful. The Ukrainian fighters have had numerous successes in their fight against Russia. It was heartening to see an image of a Ukrainian farmer on his John Deere tractor towing a Russian tank.
0: Your letter could be featured on next week's show. So send an email over to letters at DailySignal.com.
1: Virginia Allen here. I want to tell you all about a great way you can stay in the know on all the news The Daily Signal covers social media. The Daily Signal has an active presence on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We are constantly posting news stories, clips from interviews, videos, and more across all our social platforms. Follow The Daily Signal on social media so you can get all the latest content from reels on Instagram to video clips on Facebook and political commentary on Twitter. Our Daily Signal intern, Maggie, is
4: back with us today to share a good news story. Maggie, over to you. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Virginia. Pro-lifers have a new way to support the cause, by drinking coffee. Seven Weeks Coffee Company, which was founded five months ago by Anton Kresik, donates 10% of sales from every purchase to pro-life organizations and pregnancy clinics. Since opening, they have already donated $5,000. The company is called Seven Weeks Coffee because at seven weeks pregnancy, a baby is the size of a coffee bean. It's also around the time a baby's first heartbeat can be detected. Anton said he has always loved coffee and supported the pro life movement. He saw an opportunity in the market for a pro life alternative to companies like Starbucks, which donate to Planned Parenthood through matching gift programs. According to Anton, there was even more of a need than he realized, especially from Christians and conservatives who want to buy products from companies that align with their personal values. The coffee beans are sourced from Ethiopia through direct trade to ensure that there are fair wages for farmers, and no pesticides are used in the growing process. Anton told the Daily Signal, from farm to cup, we're transforming the coffee industry by uplifting people well before profits. From the farmers who are growing our coffee to ultimately the pregnancy care centers we get to support. The company is entirely e-commerce, and it ships its products anywhere in the country. Those interested in trying it can visit 7weekscoffee.com. Maggie, thank you so much for helping us start off our
1: week well with a little bit of good news. We're going to leave it there for today. You can find the Daily Signal podcast on the Ricochet Audio Network. All of our shows can be found at DailySignal.com slash podcast.
0: And you can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your podcast listening app of choice.
1: And if you like what you hear, please be sure to leave us a review and a five-star rating. It really means a lot to us, and it helps us keep spreading the word to more and more listeners.
0: Be sure to follow us on Twitter at DailySignal and at facebook.com slash The Daily Signal News. We hope you
1: all have a great week and we'll be back here with you all tomorrow.
0: The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. The executive producers are Rob Bluey and Kate Trinko. Producers are Virginia Allen and Doug Blair. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney and John Pop. For more information, please visit dailysignal.com.